Hey guys, this week I sat down with my friend Taylor J. Williams. He is an awesome film guy on YouTube. Uh, he does a lot of great analysis and I've been watching him for many years. And we talked about NYU Film School and film school in general and movie theaters and coronavirus. So, you know, it was great. <laughs> I hope you enjoy. What's up with you? Like, are you, I was just looking at your Facebook thing that says you live in Manhattan and I was like, is he still in Manhattan right now? Or are you oh. back home? <laughs> I'm, I'm back home right now. I thought I had updated everything. Yeah. Hadn't considered Facebook, but yeah, it's been a, uh, it's been a journey every day has been a different, uh, route for what I'm going to do for the fall. Yeah. Wow. So it's the, the past like five months have just been trying to figure that out, but as of like a couple days ago, I finally solidified that I am going back just because mm. obviously the blended hybrid online classes and stuff aren't ideal, right? especially for my degree. <laughs> but um, I mean, there isn't really any ideal option right now. And yeah. taking a gap semester has its whole other set of consequences and, and factors to consider and stuff. Yeah, so. yeah. So you would be yeah. you'd be living on campus, but just doing stuff, you know, on the computer or whatever. Yeah, I'll, I'll be living there, not NYU housing this year. Uh -huh. um, I'll be doing just a, a regular apartment. They say the classes are blended. I'm pretty sure they're all basically just online. Maybe you can meet with the professor once or twice. Yeah, yeah. That's about it. But yeah, I'm just kind of knocking out gen eds and stuff because mm -hmm. and and writing classes stuff that isn't too affected by being remote yeah because production um i know with phase four new york is allowed to have production as long as the crew is under cast and crew is under 25 oh uh, right but yeah. nyu for its production classes stated for the semester that you can't use school equipment you can't <laughs> have a crew of like more than four i think and you can only have one location change that is wild <laughs> it's like yeah <laughs> I wonder if I, I wonder if it. anyone will be doing like searching style, like digital, you know, like screen based yeah. stuff. It would be interesting. I don't know. And like, I, I get why all those precautions are, are necessary for not spreading COVID, but like, yeah, just don't have production classes. Right. Yeah. That was one of the things I was going to ask you about as like a topic was just NYU in general and stuff. Um, and and I guess the idea of film school, you know, as a whole, I'm sure <laughs> you've been asked about that a lot. But yeah, like, you know, I, I think a lot of people who especially are on like film Twitter and everything are so I don't know, like there's a lot of different opinions about film school. And um, NYU is obviously like the gold standard of that. My dad went to NYU in the 80s and <laughs> got an editing degree. And uh, wow. yeah, so he he constantly has stories about like how his life was basically like after hours Scorsese like just like insane New York 80s stuff um yeah. but he got a lot out of it so I don't know yeah but what you know how many years have you been there two or one uh I've been there two years so far so I'm going into my junior year yeah um and yeah I, I've seen a lot of discourse of course and even you know before going I you know watch all the YouTube videos right. I could on is film school worth it um and Obviously, I'm not done with the degree yet. Yeah. I still have a few more semesters. But um, even right now, I I get both ends of the debate, especially for people who have gone to film school and just haven't gotten anything out of it yeah. that they, they couldn't get elsewhere. I mean, those people are like, obviously, 
they have all the evidence for why film school wasn't right for them. <laughs> um, the thing is, like, there's this sentiment that's like, film school, you don't need a degree, a piece of, basically studios don't care if you have a piece of paper that says you did a certain thing. Yeah. But, um, I mean, that's not all film school is. And I know networking and connections and stuff are kind of like buzzwords, but it really is kind of (laughs) invaluable. And crewing experience, you know, people are saying like, oh, you can just get a PA job elsewhere, but it's like, you need connections to get a PA job in the first place. Yeah. And if you don't already have those. Well, and I I definitely think like with, uh, like I think getting a job in the film industry is moderately easy if you're willing to just work below, below the line your whole life, you know, but like, yeah, I think if you want to be a director, then like film school is almost entirely necessary, probably. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, um, you know, not just PA gigs, but um, it's like a controlled setting where you can do all the other jobs that, you know, even though it's a student set, you're still dealing with professional grade equipment and stuff. Yeah. And so it's still virtually the same experience again, in a controlled setting, and you can actually land the job rather than having to work your way up from a PA. Yeah. And there are different Facebook groups and stuff. Uh, Tish Crew Calls is the big one at NYU for, um, you know, whenever there's a job listing for a student set, Mm -hmm. they'll post on there. You DM whoever posted it, and that's essentially how you get a job crewing. Yeah. So it's really easy, and it's it's really a matter of... I, I mean, it's what you make it. So, you know, I wasn't too active freshman year. I, I did a couple sets, but also freshman year isn't the semester to go heavy with crewing. Yeah. But a lot of friends of mine, it was like every weekend they were on a set. Even, you know, I have friends who would skip their film classes just to work on set. And, you know, that was good for them because the classes were pretty much freshman year. It's pretty much just catch up. Uh So they weren't missing out that much. And as long as they got the right grade, it probably was the right thing to do. But yeah, there's a lot of off the book aspects. (laughs) Yeah. So was that intimidating? Like what was the, especially in your first year, like what was the community and just general vibe of, you know, going from Florida to then living in New York and being at NYU like, you know, well, Florida versus NYU or New York <laughs> was definitely a big, uh, a big change. Yeah, I mean, just living with my parents to living on my own in the first place, right. but also, you know, suburb versus big city. Um, and I, I honestly didn't go out and do as much as I wanted. I pretty much stayed in the the same like few block radius mm-hmm. most of my freshman year. Um, just because we'd hang out at the dorms, and that was about it. And then, honestly, I still haven't gotten around as much as I'd like to. Yeah. There are a lot of a lot of sites that I just haven't gotten myself to go. But, um, you know, I figure they're always there. Well, I guess they're not there right now, because I'm, you know, circumstances have changed. <laughs> also, a lot of places have closed down yeah. as a result of this, which really makes me regret not... Um, you know, taking advantage of them being there <laughs> while I was there. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, I, I'd say when I started crewing, I was definitely pretty intimidated just because 
you know, it's like the bottom of the totem pole. And even freshman year, so to technically to crew on a set outside of being a PA, you have to take this class called production safety uh-huh. and um, a pretty self-explanatory <laughs> class. But um, that's, yeah, mandatory class sophomore year, but you can take it freshman year as because um, NYU has a January term. So I did that so I could start crewing second semester. Yeah. And so I just did a bunch of jobs as a grip and eventually, you know, it it was fun kind of, uh, you know, the hands-on practical experience, but it was definitely at first I had a sense of like, you know, everyone here knows what they're doing. (laughs) I I just know how to open a C stand. (laughs) That's about it. And even that I still kind of suck at. So, you know. Well, (laughs) even... I've seen a lot of people who have gone through the the classes and have been on sets and they still have these really <laughs> preposterous systems. I don't know. I do the uh the I hold the outermost stand with b- between my knees open up clockwise <laughs> or counterclockwise, I guess. Yeah. That's what's where I've seen people who like rest the C stand on their shoulder oh, and then Lord, man. open it from there and it's just like swinging behind them. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know what to say to those people. Yeah. But um, this year, I also didn't do that much crewing outside of class this year, but I was in more regimented production classes, so I was still doing more production and stuff. <laughs> and second semester, I actually had more, um, I, I guess, free time to crew, and I had signed up for sets, and then, of course, everything happened, and that, you know, fell through, but... Um, I did crew on a couple sets. Hold on, let me turn down my Facebook Messenger volume. I don't know <laughs> if you can hear that. But anyway, yeah, uh, it was a lot better this year. I don't know if it was just the the psychology of not being a freshman anymore, but right. there was a yeah. lot more just communal camaraderie. We're all kind of just doing this thing together. Um, so it was a lot more of a communal experience. Yeah. What was, what was the sort of... Um... Would you say there are like, I mean, in terms of like race, gender, type of person, places people are from, like what are the most common kind of combinations of people that you've seen? Or is it like entirely just like totally different people, you know? Um, I haven't exactly picked up on on any trends from being on. Well, I mean, there's definitely a sort of G&E brand of person who's not so much into the creative work because the the two sides of film school are like, you know, the aspiring writer directors who see it as, you know, a creative incubator basically. And then there's the aspect that's like, you know, this is a trade school and you're learning a trade to go on these sets and and do this physical labor. So, you know, the grip and electric teams are very much into, you know, a lot of the time they don't even really care if the film's any good. (laughs) As long as they can just do some cool setups and all that. Yeah. But, um, I mean, yeah, between that, I guess that's the biggest, um, like, archetype I've seen on set. Obviously, it's NYU, so you've got a lot of, you know, film bro, <laughs> uh, you know, people who, who, who think have they're going to be Who have Tarantino posters on their wall. Yeah. 
Right. Like and, like you, you know, and me. But yeah. uh, <laughs> we, we can't act like we're above them. We all we all want to be the next Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> Except he dropped out of NYU. Yeah, so man. there's that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. One of my classes uh freshman year, one of the classes that was like you know, I really felt like I was wasting my tuition in this class, but it was mandatory. Yeah. Um it was basically just my professor showing us a bunch of artists and examples and trying to help us find our creative voices, which I get it, but it was mostly pretty abstract. And the the funny thing is every artist she showed us was either a high school or college dropout (laughs) or someone who just had no formal education and you know, they were great artists. Did she she mention that or was that the subtext or just you knew that? Like (laughs) yeah, no, she never mentioned (laughs) It like obviously if it was like a big part of the artist's life, she would talk about that. Yeah. But it was never addressed that every single artist she showed us was not of a formal background. And so it's like, okay, well, why are we even here then? Yeah. But um yeah, no, even as far as sophomore year, I, I am glad I'm in the program and junior and senior year when you do your intermediate and advanced short films, um, it's when you have access to, you know, higher level camera classes, writing classes, all that. So looking at what's ahead, um, you know, I'm looking forward to it as long as we can actually go back to doing stuff in person. Because <laughs> I have no idea what how different spring is going to no, be. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be a like, weird, fall's pretty bad, like strange I, I medium. I doubt it'll be that different. Yeah. yeah, even if things are better in the world. You know, I don't expect we'll get a vaccine for a long time, but even if we do, just being the fallout, um, you know, I can't imagine it'll just go back to normal after one semester. Yeah, so yeah. there's definitely that to consider. So have you, uh, you mentioned the two types of people who were there. I'm 100% sure you fall more into the creative writer type, <laughs> but have you, uh, yeah, like have your goals shifted at all as you've been there so far? Like if you kind of stepped into figured out close more closely what you want to do or all that kind of thing or has it mainly stayed the same it's stayed the same for the most part i know a lot of professors tell you that you know everyone goes into this program wanting to be a writer director by the end of it most of them have found one specific job that they're cool with but most of the people i know who went in wanting to be writer directors still want to be writer directors Mm -hmm. i guess the difference now is that there's a little less pressure to have a big break during school or or right, you know, pretty Mm, immediately after graduation because, you know, with all the experience and and seeing what being on set is like, I'm a lot more comfortable working for a few years, doing more practical jobs, stuff like that. Yeah. And even um, it's not necessarily the same, but, um, like staff writing as opposed to being like an outdoor, it's still like a, a job, like a nine to five <laughs> full-time thing yeah. in a more traditional sense. So that's an interesting creative blend. Yeah. What do you think as far as um, like how does the internet play into the community there, you know, and, and the idea of like getting your break and stuff? Like does anyone there sort of aspire to – 
you know, have content that's successful online or is it all more theatrical aspirations and, you know, yeah, you know, and, and especially with your YouTube channel and stuff, do you see that playing into things at all? It's, uh, yeah, no, that's actually interesting because there are a lot of people that I've seen um, who are trying to brand themselves via YouTube in like kind of an influencer type way, <laughs> even if they don't actually have a following yet. But, you know, they're film students, so they know how to make it look nice. Yeah. But um, one thing that I actually hadn't considered until I, I had class with certain people is, like, people who are there to learn film for the sake of internet-type content, like college humor-type mm -hmm. stuff. Um, I don't know why I hadn't considered that that was a, a genre. But, um, yeah, I mean, formal training for something like that makes just as much sense as for any type of film, I guess. Right. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess that's more of a, a genre difference versus a medium difference. But yeah, everyone, the, the branding is insane. Yeah. Everyone's got a personal website and yeah, I mean, letterboxd is another, like <laughs> I, I pretty much only follow like the, the YouTubers we're friends with. And then my classmates at NYU. Yeah. But it's it's weird because, you know, when I was in high school, it was just like I had it for my my YouTube followers as like a supplemental thing. Yeah. But now it, it actually feels like a social media. Well, that's another question, I guess, is like, yeah, like do uh, I mean, obviously, most people at NYU have opinions about movies and thus express those opinions online. But like, do you meet a lot of people, maybe including yourself, who have aspirations to maybe be a film critic also or is that like their backup kind of thing or is it literally just you know like that's just sort of a thing that I like to do kind of thing yeah I guess I haven't met too many people in the film program who aspire to be critics yeah I mean I a lot of my friends are good at writing about movies on letterboxd or in class for an essay or something but it's definitely not their aspiration but I think that also has to do with um Tish having a whole separate department for cinema studies right, yeah. as opposed to film and TV, like the practical uh, hands-on courses. So what about you? Do you, uh, that's something I've kind of asked a lot of the people who have come on the podcast, like what do they see YouTube as in terms of a future thing? Like, are they, is it kind of just a side hobby or is it something that you see actually kind of evolving into something bigger, you know? I mean, it's it's definitely something I would be content doing. It's not necessarily my my end goal yeah. or anything like that. But I have considered. I mean, like the reason I made the YouTube channel in the first place was to sort of gain a following by talking about movies and then eventually making movies, so that I could have, I, I guess, an audience already. Uh, familiar with my work if I wanted to crowdfund a feature or something like that. Yeah. Um, so on, on one hand, it's a, a bit of a means to an end, but it is something I do enjoy quite a bit. And I've applied for um, internships at different publications um, and sent in sample work and stuff. But the other thing is like, um, obviously having articles or reviews and stuff published at you know legitimate sites looks nice and probably pays well but right. it's interesting that um you know depending on how well some of my videos do that it could 
that it could be more lucrative to oh, yeah. stick to YouTube for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've kind of had the same, same I don't know, dilemma, I guess. Um, I, I have kind of not given up, but my, like your professor said, my dreams have morphed a little bit in terms of what I wanted to do. I sort of realized that I'm, I'm not really someone who wants to do fiction, like directing all that much. If I direct, I think it would probably be documentaries. Um, but like in the, in the, uh, in the near future, I guess I, I would be very content with like writing for websites or whatever, or having the YouTube thing grow. Um, but yeah, so it's sort of a, I'm still pretty undecided on whether I'll go to film school or not. Uh, and if I, or even if I'll go to school at all, like, <laughs> and at this yeah. point it kind of looks as if, if I do go to school, it would probably be something closer to journalism for that reason. Um, but yeah, they, I was going to mention to you there. So I live in Georgia, um, which I think is the, I think it's the second biggest hub for film in America. Um, Probably. And it is, I mean, stuff gets shot here all the time. Not now, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. and, uh, so they started a thing like three years ago called the Georgia Film Academy, which is like, uh, they have it at Pinewood Studios where they film all the Marvel movies and stuff. And I went there for two semesters and it's basically like a a la carte, like you just choose your classes and pay for them individually. And it's not, um, I think you do it through colleges. So I did it through like a state college or something. It's almost like dual enrollment, I guess. But yeah, so like you take an intro to film course for one semester and then, and that's like literally like $500 or something like that. And then you take a specialty course for another semester. So I did intro to film in the fall of like 20, whatever it was, 2018. And then, uh, an editing avid, uh, certification course in the in the next semester in the spring and after you complete both those they literally just give you an internship as long as as long as you did okay and that means basically you can be like a PA on a film set in Georgia somewhere uh, and they'll find a spot for you um, or like you know some other low-level kind of assistant thing and so yeah it was really interesting because like they definitely were training people for below the line stuff and saying like look if you want to be a director you should go to film school. But other than that, like they were majorly discouraging film school. A lot of the time they were like, look, this is all you need. And, uh, and yeah, so it was, it was interesting because it was a lot of that sort of, yeah, like people who wanted to be grips. Um, but also everyone kind of had writer or director aspirations, of course, but yeah, it was an interesting sort of like <laughs> loophole around the film school system. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how many, um, extracurriculars are kind of popping up. Yeah. One of my roommates, from LA did a similar program. Uh, it's called ghetto film school. And I don't know if it counted for credit, like dual enrollment uh -huh. or if it was just its own thing. But I mean, by the end of it, he had an internship at Warner bros that oh, wow. he still has, Nice, you know, driving John Stamos around <laughs> stuff like that. But then, you know, he still went to film school, uh, cause he wants to be a cinematographer. Yeah. So it's, and, and that's another thing. Um, you know, being able to, you know, shooting freelance is one thing, but actually being able to, um, cause there's like a cinematography track at NYU, but probably most schools I'd imagine. Um, and so with required classes and stuff, you, um, you know, it's like part of the, the course that you have to DP student films. And so, and directors are always looking for, um, student directors are always looking for DPs. So it's kind of an interesting, everyone kind of 
needs each other yeah. to do the thing yeah. that they want to do. And so that's another interesting like homeostasis aspect <laughs> of film school. Yeah. It was definitely like a and I mean the nice thing with with the Georgia Film Academy stuff was like I mean it was just a world of connections basically without any of the sort of having to get into a school or something like that. And I definitely know a lot of people who have gone on and done some PA work. And one of my friends did PA work on Endgame and stuff like that, which was literally across the street from where we were doing the wow. school. Um, so that was cool. But yeah, it's funny because like in Georgia, everything is just in the middle of nowhere, like where they shoot movies and stuff. And this was no different. Like Pinewood is just out in the country and like among redneck territory. And uh, that's where like they shot Wakanda and everything because it's just big, <laughs> open, grassy fields. And Wow. So, yeah, it was interesting. I was going to ask you as far as like student films and stuff. Obviously, you've made a few of them. <laughs> All of them I've enjoyed, the ones you've put on YouTube. Oh, thank you. Do you think, yeah, like you've, very generic question, but do you think you've learned anything from those those <laughs> films you made? <laughs> like, And also about like what, uh, I don't know, what is the best approach to take when making a student film, like as far as premise and everything like that? Um, I mean, the, the biggest thing I've gotten from working on other sets and, you know, doing my own shorts and stuff is, I, I guess, more about short film versus feature than student versus professional right. film. Yeah. In that you can't really have a standard narrative um, with you know, standard character development and, you know, all the, the Freytag's pyramid of plot development in a short, unless it's, you know, really small scale. Mm -hmm. And most stories people think of for shorts are features that they try to condense <laughs> yeah. or just don't develop a lot. So I guess the biggest thing um, is that I've, I've tried to think of stuff that is small scale yes. or... Yeah isn't even I mean with the most recent short I posted in December not even like a, a sustainable narrative device for a feature something that kind of only really works as a short um well that wasn't the most insightful answer but um <laughs> no I get it I don't know yeah. I, I guess just what narrative devices work better for shorts versus feature and it's kind of something to feel out yeah, I, I've talked to a few people recently who have asked me for advice on like like ideas they've been writing for fantasy things. Um, someone I know was writing like a sort of a um, fantasy epic, you know, world building kind of Lord of the Rings-esque uh, story. And I wrote an epic fantasy novel when I was 14, so I can't rag on anyone. Um, but it's like, I think there's definitely a place for that. And it's definitely something that's like a great way to flex your creative muscles. But like, obviously there's like a one in a million chance that you're getting your fantasy series made at 17. And yeah. so I definitely think like, I encourage people usually to, to like try and make, try and like dream up things that they could actually do feasibly in one room or at least with a couple locations. Um, and, and I think, especially like in terms of ambition and stuff. Like I watch like Pixar short films and go, there are so many different Pixar shorts that capture so much about like life and humans and emotion and all in like five minutes. 
And I wish more film students would focus on telling stories like that rather than, like you said, like trying to cram in a whole feature into like 10 minutes or whatever. Yeah. And and I think animation plays into that too, where certainly like animated stuff can open up more opportunities for small scale stories because you can kind of bring objects to life or whatever. But I think especially in premise like Pixar shorts, I always go, that's what you should study to tell a short story. Like, <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And then the other thing is um, obviously you want a, a scope that you can work with. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you do like a one room college student cast, yes. those are other giveaways. Another cliche. So yeah. Y- you want it to be manageable, but you also want it to be... Uh, something that feels like someone who's not in film school would still make yeah be it plot justification or having you know someone over the age of 35 in the movie <laughs> stuff like that well anyway i guess i was gonna ask you if you've watched anything this year that you would recommend to people like because i have really not <laughs> and maybe we could talk about Movies from this year, as few of them as there are, as well as like the movie theater stuff going on right now. Obviously, Tenet is not opening this month. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've only seen a few, just a small handful. Actually, my, my next video is going to be sort of about me catching up on 2020 releases. Oh, nice. I'm doing yeah. a bunch of double features. Um, so far, the only movies I've, I've really... <laughs> liked a considerable amount were uh five bloods um what was it big time adolescence has been growing on me uh-huh. i thought it was kind of all right watching it but um i don't know it's it sat well with me but the one film probably my favorite that i've seen this year that surprisingly few people are talking about is um shirley i don't know if you've heard of that i don't think i have with yeah. elizabeth moss i think it's a hulu original Oh, yeah, I think I have heard something, but I don't know anything about it. So, But yeah, it's it's kind of poorly marketed. It looks like a, a biopic about um, Shirley Jackson. She wrote The Lottery, which you probably had to read in high school. Yeah. Um, but it's it's historical fiction. So big difference from biopic. I don't know. I, I was a big fan of it. It's um, a really interesting tonal blend. It's not a thriller but it's kind of unsettling uh-huh. throughout the whole time, even though it's not really, you know, dark subject matter or anything. It's it's kind of just a love square. Yeah. But it's still, you know, pretty un- unsettling and uncomfortable. You can't really trust anything that's happening. But, yeah, I, I don't, for some reason it just wasn't marketed that well. But yeah, I, I think weird. it's a really, uh, really interesting piece to, to take – you know, we don't get all that much. Um, I don't know the the biopic saturation versus historical fiction. I guess I shouldn't say we don't get that much, but um, I mean, even like Hamilton is is. I mean, it's a I was play. Not just going to bring it up. Yeah, I feel like that is historical fiction in a sense. But yeah, that one definitely uh, walks a certain line. Yeah, just because it's it's almost more of a presentation than a narrative but um yeah Shirley is just a, a completely fictional story about someone who happened to be a real person interesting but yeah definitely really good movie 
recommend that. You could say and it's on maybe the same thing of The Greatest Showman if you wanted to bend over backwards. <laughs> oh, true. I still haven't seen The Greatest Showman. You, uh... <laughs> it's not it, one of my I don't priorities. think it needs to be on the top of your list. Yeah. I Maybe one day I'll get around to it. I did make it. a video defending it, but uh, <laughs> only because... I felt like it represented something where I'm like, I think this type of movie should exist and it gets too much heat. It's not my favorite thing in the world. Um, But yeah, like I definitely think with historical fiction stuff, it's interesting to me because I don't know, like I feel like it's totally okay to use a historical figure like you're talking about as like just sort of the the launch pad for another story you want to tell, like you know, the greatest showman basically just uses P.T. Barnum as like, he's the circus guy. And that's the only commonality that he has with anything in the show or anything in in real life. Um, and then I was watching, uh, the wind rises a few days ago, which was Miyazaki's most recent movie. And it's the same thing. I don't know if you've seen it, but where, uh, yeah, like it's, it's a, it's the guy who designed the airplanes for Japan in world war two. And, it's exploring like his passion for, for airplanes and designing them from his childhood to adulthood. And then like the dichotomy of like the fact that he wanted to design these things because they were this beautiful thing, but then they were used for something so terrible. But yeah, it, it totally fictionalizes a lot of stuff where it sort of plays with the narrative in an interesting way and has lots of dream sequences and they add a total, they add a romantic subplot, which like usually I would have a problem with, but it felt like they, the romantic subplot was like added for a thematic purpose. Um, and I don't know, I, I really enjoy that kind of thing. And and that was a, another movie that like to- totally caught heat because it was a thing where people were like, well, you know, this is not how the, the guy actually was and you can't depict it this way. And then I think some, one of the Japanese like associations was like also he shouldn't be smoking in the movie. You're setting a bad example. But Whoa. There was a lot of stuff just piled oh. on. I had, I had no idea of like the controversy about it when it came out, but yeah. Yeah, it's um it's definitely interesting, especially something like that that's um kind of walking that that same line. That's like he he did all these things but we're kind of embellishing a bit versus like just a completely fiction. I mean like the prestige with Tesla. Yes. Yeah. Just inserting a historical figure into something like that. Which I mean, with The Wind Rises, it's another interesting thing because it's like that movie is almost an autobiography for Miyazaki, like not as a obviously the plot itself is not, but he like the main character shares a lot in common with Miyazaki and you can tell that sort of he he wrote the narrative to fit his own uh persona and aspirations and i don't know yeah i think there's something enjoyable about that flexibility yeah for sure what do you think about movie theaters and stuff oh i'm not stepping into a movie theater until there's a vaccine (laughs) obviously i love movie theaters and i want them to survive this whole thing but like you're you're stupid if you're going into a movie theater like they've released public records about how filthy movie theaters are <laughs> just just stay away yeah for now what what uh it's, it's not that long in the grand scheme of things what theater did you go to when you were in new york um i mean i, I went to like amcs and regals that were nearby but the ifc and the angelica were the two 
you know, art house indie, not really indie, but quote unquote indie theaters. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, IFC is probably my favorite theater. Um, Metrograph's really great. I only went there once, but you know, I've been meaning to go there more. And then Lincoln Center is sort of the bigger releases. It's where they have the New York Film Festival. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've seen a lot of films there. They do stuff like, you know, the Bong Joon-ho marathon. Oh, nice. They had, I, I saw a couple of the films there, which was really cool. Yeah. I mean, they, they've all, I mean, New York and LA are like the places for just a bunch of theaters that have all this programming, not necessarily for new releases, but just whatever the curator feels like showing. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Do you prefer Regal or AMC? Um, I, I guess AMC at this point. Yeah, me too. As much as it sucks to say that, given their CEO and everything, but <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's tough. But I mean, at least based on the locations there and the locations at home, just AMCs in general are a bit nicer of an experience. Also, I, I think the Regal at least in New York, is actually more expensive oh, yeah. than AMC, Yeah, like even before A-List. So That's how it is in Atlanta. I, I had A-List and I would go like three times a week usually and just re-see things if I hadn't seen or whatever. Uh, I'd usually use all three credits. <laughs> but yeah, like all nice. of the, um, pretty much all the AMC theaters in Atlanta are much nicer than the Regal theaters and they are somewhat cheaper. So it's never really a question for me, but it's weird because I I like talk to people who live in different cities and some people say like, oh, well in my city, AMC is the theater that sucks and Regal is the one that's nice. So I don't know. It's just a total varying thing, but yeah, I, I milked a list for all it was worth. And I really, really hope to God that it comes back. (laughs) Yeah. We'll we'll see. (laughs) The other thing is because, um, at least with like the union square, AMC and Regal, yeah, because um amc has um just the way they're laid out they actually a lot of the time weren't showing certain movies i wanted to see that regal was Mm -hmm. um the two that come to mind i guess suspiria and the beach bum were two that like oh yeah they're, they're not like small releases but they're not necessarily blockbusters but regal was showing them and amc wasn't so there's definitely something to be said for that, at least. I assume most of the AMCs in New York have like recliners and stuff, right? Like, yeah, yeah. because <laughs> even the ones in Atlanta, like almost everyone does now. I feel like that's been a thing with movie theaters and it feels weird to even talk about movie theaters now, like <laughs> experience. Yeah. But yeah, like I, I feel like once theaters started having reserved seats and everything, I noticed less like disturbing movie guests and stuff. I don't know. And maybe part of it was just the area of town that I was at when I would go to my AMC and everything. But like once they got recliners and reserved seats, I really pretty rarely had problems with like people in the theater making noise or doing stupid things like because I almost felt like maybe part of it was that when you have to reserve a seat like it, there's a level of like intentionality there where I don't know, uh, some people when seats weren't reserved, I think would just like go to a movie on a whim. But now when seats are reserved, you know that the people who are there at least usually like 
did this like two weeks in advance, right? Like, yeah. And so, yeah, that's an interesting aspect of that. I, I hadn't considered. Yeah. I will say when I saw Godzilla King of the Monsters, there was this group of teenagers who were just sitting in the front row and just kind of like on their phones and just kind of there to hang out. And then the dads were in the back row. And so it was kind of an interesting dynamic there. <laughs> I wasn't too disappointed to have the movie kind of disrupted just because, you know, it's, it's Godzilla. It's Godzilla. The yeah. <laughs> um, that was actually funny, too, because the theater, <laughs> the power went out like 30 seconds before the credits rolled. <laughs> and so it's like the, the final moment and then the power goes out. The kids don't really care because they weren't really paying attention. <laughs> the dads are livid. They're talking to the you know the managers and, and trying to get everything back up, but just like just yelling amongst themselves. And then the movie started back up, and it was like you know where we stopped it was the last like thirty seconds, but it was just you know after like five minutes of being out of it, it was just kind of not <laughs> yeah. The most immersive movie moment. Yeah. I, have you ever been to a studio movie grill or like one of the theaters that serves food or something like that? Yeah, I, I've been to one in Tampa. There's a, a place called Villaggio. Yeah. Um, it's 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 all right. But like the food's really expensive and it's it's not that disruptive to have someone come in and, and bring food. But it's still I don't know. It's not like I'd rather just smuggle in yeah. snacks. Than have like a, a craft meal. Man, you have outed yourself on a public podcast. I can't believe it. But uh, they're they're <laughs> gonna come after me. I have been to Studio Movie Grill twice. There was one that opened near my house, and I was like, "Oh, cool, a new theater. I'll check it out." And they were two of the worst theatrical experiences of my entire life because wow, the first uh, the first time I went, luckily both times I went were terrible movies. The first time I went was Justice League. <laughs> nice. And it was like, I think it was the second night that the, that the theater was open. Like they had literally just opened and lots of the people there, I think had been given free screening tickets or something like that maybe. But I was like shocked by the way that I felt like in a sense, the presence of food in a movie theater just changes the entire dynamic of like what people feel is acceptable. Cause like. (laughs) Everyone had food and they were just talking to each other. People were literally talking on the phone and using their phone flashlight all the time. Like so many people were using their phone flashlight to look at the menu and everything, ordering to the waiter in like a totally normal voice. The The waiters didn't even come in until after the movie had started. It was also like terribly planned because once the recliners like once the leg part goes up, the, oh, right. the waiter had like to like through. scooch past and then and part of this might have been just like opening night stuff that they hadn't figured out yet. But then the waiters were like kneeling by the lights that are on the staircase to look at the check and like make sure they had the the numbers correct and everything. And so that was distracting. And then halfway through, like this guy gets in a fight with his girlfriend on the phone next to me while we're watching oh, Justice God. League. And I was like, this is insane. And so I went back one more time to be like, all right. Maybe it'll be different if it's not opening night. And I saw the Meg and <laughs> halfway through the movie. Well, first of all, it starts with a commercial where Studio Movie Grill says at Studio Movie Grill, the food is our priority. And I'm like, really? 
Wow. Because what about the movie? And then halfway through the movie, that statement proved to be correct because the guy next to me had a birthday cake delivered to him what? during the movie with candles on fire and the waitress like sang happy birthday to him in the middle of the movie. I was like, that's gotta be so weird losing for, like, my mind. And stuff. Yeah. <laughs> wow, and then he blew that, out the candles is... and I'm like, what is going on? So I never went back, but. <laughs> oh, I, I can't blame you. Yeah. I, that I is a birthday cake. That's really <laughs> crossing a line, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, overall with AMC, I've enjoyed, yeah, just like the reserve seats and like the one near me has like a Dolby, you know, sound theater and all that. Um, and I haven't had very many problems at all. I used to go when like before A-List and before Movie Pass and all that stuff, I would go to the Dollar Theater, which was near me, which was like, you know, it's like two dollars to get into the movie and they show stuff that's like three months old oh yeah i've, I've got one of those yeah and it's like it was only old people there <laughs> i was um i think i saw Le Miz with my mom because we were trying to catch up on all the best picture yeah. movies and that was the only place that was still showing it and then as we walked out of the theater someone was getting put in a stretcher because <laughs> they had a heart attack walking oh my out god of the theater. <laughs> yeah yeah the one near me would be like like it was, I mean, in opposition to the whole reserve seat theory that like there's more intentionality there, like because it was a dollar theater, like everyone who was there had just chosen to come on a whim. Mm. And so that was the theater where I would see the most people bring like a toddler or a baby or yeah, I remember seeing like Days of Future Past, I think, at that theater. And there was literally like a single mother with two screaming children who she was just letting play on iPads in the front row and I was losing my mind and I mean obviously like part of it was a sad thing but also a cool thing because it was like well a lot of people coming were people who can't afford to come to a normal movie theater usually and probably can't afford a babysitter for their kid and everything and so in a sense it was like well I'm glad they're at least getting to see a movie but man this is uh not a good experience <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you're taking your kid to a movie, they're not going to remember, like, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to spend top dollar on that. Yeah. So I, I guess I can't really blame them, but still, I, I can't imagine that's another ideal movie experience. I had so many things with that theater where, like, I think, like, on one of my first ever dates with a girl, I went to see La La Land with her. Uh, <laughs> that exposes when my first date was. Wow. <laughs> but I went to see La La Land with a girl, and for the first like 15 minutes of the movie, there was just a bright white stage light pouring down on the audience from the top of the theater. And finally I went out and I was like, Hey, there's a stage light pouring down on the theater and they turned it off for me. But that was like one of many things like that. <laughs> it's pretty funny, especially, you know, for the movie that has a scene where someone stands in front of the projector <laughs> in a movie and no one does anything. Yeah. What do you think about the uh, the digital scene? Like everything dropping on digital and the idea of like can, you know, stuff that was meant for theatrical stuff be successful on digital? Like especially with the whole like Invisible Man being a $20 rent and then not making much money and then Trolls being the same and making Total Bank. <laughs> like, Which obviously um, is a family movie thing, but yeah. Right, yeah, it's... 
it's hard to say. I don't know. I'm not too well-versed in, in those business aspects, but it's definitely like, you know, $20 is like a New York, LA movie ticket price. Yeah. And so for that to become the national price for a movie that's not even in theaters, obviously I get that this is the only way to watch it. And I get that, like, I, I get it from the studio's perspective, but it's also like, you don't want to spend $20 on a, uh, a streaming rental. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the trolls thing was outrageous. I can't believe that actually <laughs> happened, but um, it's insane. I saw a meme that was like giant dominoes. And the first one is, uh, you know, whatever his name is making the first troll doll in 1967. And then the final domino is the death of the movie theater industry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, we've also been shifting more towards direct to video, uh, streaming movies in general. So I guess this is probably just, you know, given that a bit more of a head start. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. People do miss the movie theater, so obviously it won't be completely obsolete. I really I do think. Yeah, I, I feel like people will be dying to go back once everything is back to normal instead of just watching stuff on your couch again. Yeah, and that's why, you know, <laughs> another reason for for waiting to drop Tenet, <laughs> if, if that's one of the first to come yeah. out when theaters are safe, it's going to, you know, it's going to dominate. And I know he's he said, oh, I'm not, you know, I don't want to release it for the money. I want to usher in a new wave of <laughs> cinema. But it's like, come on. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I think the strange thing for me about everything has been that, like, it's all, again, it's like a, gra it's been a gradual thing and everyone is, like, following different standards. So, like, there was a point where, you know, back in whatever, like early May or late April, like literally almost everyone was in their houses. Nothing was going on. Like people weren't really breaking the rules. Everyone took it seriously, or at least a lot of people did. <laughs> and back then I was like, well, when movie theaters reopen, everyone will be begging to go back because they'll be like, yes, I can finally leave my house. But now it's been such like a gradual shift back to normalcy for some things and some people and then in other places not normalcy at all like it's still the same that like I pictured it in my head as like one day the floodgates would just open and then it, it would all be back to normal in a day and that's not what it is at all like <laughs> yeah it's definitely the fact that people are trying to return to normal even though it's kind of worse than ever right now yeah um yeah I it it's hard to say obviously what's going to happen especially because at the start of this whole thing amc was you know threatening bankruptcy it's wild yeah i, I don't know where that went like <laughs> yeah i haven't heard of any buyouts or stimuli or anything like that but it doesn't seem like much of a threat anymore yeah maybe they're just not as vocal about it i don't know i heard but... something that it was like yeah, that they had figured something out, but I don't remember what. <laughs> but it is a strange thing because it's like, well, obviously all of those thousands of theaters across the whole country are not going to just sit empty for the rest of, you know, until they become a spirit Halloween or something like that. <laughs> they will be yeah. bought out by someone. But 
would you prefer to wait for Tenet or would you prefer for it to drop on digital now? <laughs> like, Oh, I, I definitely prefer to wait. Yeah. I mean, I like to think of myself as a pretty patient person. <laughs> also, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure Tenet will be great, but it's also not like a property I'm, I'm dying to see. Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll see it opening night, of course, as long as it's safe. But, um, I mean, it, it's also made with the, I mean, as pretentious as it is, it's like the whole sanctity of, of the cinema yeah. is like one of the reasons the movie was made in the first place. So I think with this specific movie, releasing it digitally, like goes against the whole reason it was made. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I've, I, I definitely would like to wait for it more. Um, but it's interesting what's now being like classified as like, like what would have been released in theaters and what is not anymore. Like Artemis Fowl was supposed to come out in June or whatever. And now it's on Disney plus and you watch it and you're like, this isn't even good enough for Disney plus. Like <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine this being in theaters. It would have been insane. But now not to yeah. mention new mutants, which oh my God, they refuse to release digitally. <laughs> that is like the most self parody thing for me is the notion that they were just they were just about there they were almost they were there so close. and now like <laughs> it's insane yeah but yeah i'm i'm glad they're sticking to their guns though yeah no they're not they're not submitting they're going to give new mutants the theatrical release it deserves there is part of me in the deepest recesses of my soul that thinks what if it's good what if it's like really good <laughs> they've done so many reshoots there's no way no it can way. flop yeah <laughs> Anyway, well, it's been good to talk to you. Yeah. And it's, it's, especially the MIU stuff. I loved hearing that. I hope that the semester is good. Um, thank you. You'll have to keep people posted. Do you think you'll – have you made other short films that you haven't released on YouTube or have you released almost all the ones you've made? Um, yeah, I've pretty much released all the ones I've made. Obviously, there's stuff I've worked on that, um, you know, I didn't direct. So yeah. it's on whoever directed it to release – and then, like, class projects, um, you know, I, I posted, like, four just in one video because I didn't want to really market them as their own short films just because they were made as exercises, pretty much. Yeah. And then Grillmaster, the improvisation. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> well, where can people follow you on all the things like you do at the end of a podcast? Well, uh, Letterboxd, I am Taylor Film Guy. Twitter, I am... Also, Taylor Film he Guy. He led with his letterbox. Interesting. Very NYU. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, you know, my YouTube, just my name, Taylor J. Williams. And then Instagram is Taylor underscore J underscore Williams. And that is my social media. There you go. Are you still doing the Patreon thing? Uh, yes, I am still doing it. I've, I've been changing my perks and stuff quite a bit. Yeah. But uh, yeah, still on Patreon. Also my name. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if, if you want to pledge, I certainly won't stop you. <laughs> I pledged a dollar for about a year, so I feel <laughs> I, very I self-satisfied. That. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, I wish you the best of luck at NYU, however insane that will be. And, uh, Thank can't wait for the next video and all that. Thank you. I, I look forward to, you know, seeing what else you do podcast or otherwise yeah I've, I've got williams on this week and the next week should be willems patrick h is coming yes. on so williams will be fun anyway 
Well, I will, I never talk to the listeners, but listeners, I will uh, see you in the next episode. So yeah, goodbye. (laughs) Great punctuation. Of course.